Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today we have a bonus interview with Lars Vingerfors. He is the CEO of Embracer Group, which is a gaming company based in Sweden. Do you want to kind of, we get right into it. So do you want to describe what Embracer Group does? Yeah. So they buy up uh, studios that produce video games um, and they have a lot of them. They basically have the head, uh, which Lars is running as the founder and CEO, and they have people working there. And then they have eight separate operating groups who have either internal studios or they're the publisher or they're really just one big studio maybe and they focus on different niches maybe different games stuff like that but they have a lot of autonomy for each operating group so they're almost like separate companies but it's all one big corporate entity lars will get into more of that how they set up incentives all that good stuff but that should be hopefully you can go into it now understanding how embracer group the business works and i should say they're based in Sweden. Uh, so if you're looking them up, they're going to be on the Swedish one. Well, they could be like a Nordic stock exchange. I forget exactly what it's called, but they're not. Well, they have a U.S. listing, like an ADR, I believe, but it's a Swedish company. They don't have a giant presence in the United States. Yeah. And I will also add, uh, feel free to go look up his kind of story because uh, he started the business or his first business originally in high school. And it's really kind of a cool entrepreneurial path. Um, and he's been in the gaming business for a long time. So it's fun to learn about that. But before we get to that, we have a word from our sponsor, our new sponsor, Stream by Mosaic. Stream by Mosaic is an expert interview transcript library. And so we've used them here before. It's a great addition to your research process. You can get, uh, I think it's 8,500 plus call transcripts are available and they add 300 different expert interviews each week. 70% of those experts are from uh, are exclusive to their platform. Uh, you are familiar with Stream by Mosaic. What do you think of it? Yeah, it's great if you want to get up to speed on a certain industry. If you're not sure about competitive dynamics between certain companies, I mean, these call transcripts can be fantastic for understanding that. You know, you can get the basics of a business from its investor relations page and SEC filings, but really the more of the gray area stuff, any sort of dynamics between culture, brand, how employees treat them or not how employees treat them, how they treat employees, all that good stuff you can get from all these transcripts and they got thousands of them and they're on all, all sorts of different companies. Yeah. I mean, usually these people were or have been associated with the company. So you get a lot more candor uh, than you might get just from their IR site. So why don't you uh, go ahead, go to streamrg.com and you can sign up for a 14 free 14 day free trial using pro, uh, co promo code CCM. Uh, anything else that we should add? I guess. I don't think so. Use, oh, you can use our code chitchat at seven investing. You get $50 off the annual. I think that's, this is one of the last times it runs out on January 1st. So use it before the new year. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Okay, today we are welcomed by. I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and try to get it right. Lars Vingafors. How was that? Was that a decent? Great, fantastic. Okay, um, and he's the CEO of Embracer Group, which is a uh, publicly traded video game publisher, kind of a uh, holding company. I guess there's a lot of studios under their umbrella, um, based in Sweden, I believe. Um, so. Let's go back to the beginning. What kind of inspired you to start with Embracer Group? I know you have a pretty unique story. You started when you were young. Can you, so can you go back to that as well? Sure. No, I, I started doing business very young when I started collecting comic books and then started my mail order business with comic books. And then I got into other things. So when I was 16, I, I started the mail order business in video games and uh, trading old NES games, Super Nintendo, and you know had like uh, had like uh, uh, an exchange on video for video games online or or by mail so and then start importing started my own retail you know had distribution so um, so that business kind of expanded in the 90s and 
brought in, uh, you know, during the dot-com, I, I, I got acquired of a public company. So I got to know how it was to work within the public company. They went under. So, and then I had venture capitalists coming in, work with them for a few years. And, but since 2004, I've been on my own, uh, together with my business partners, um, and we decided to to you know go public with the business we started uh, THQ Nordic 2011. Um, so we decided 2016 to go public, and that's now five years ago. In order to get access to growth capital for both organic investments, meaning making more games, and and then doing acquisitions. Yeah, and we'll talk about that. You know, your guys's M and A strategy is you know pretty unique. Uh, but we'll get to that later. But I want to just kind of connect everyone to where we are in the present now. So what were the early days like? Say you get, you, know, you guys started this new business in 2004. And then how has it evolved kind of the big changes to where the business is now? Yeah, so going back to 2004, so before then, I had like an end consumer business, mail order and so on. To 2004, uh, we decided to focus around uh, you know, low price discount games uh, on new on retail. So that became really successful. Remember, this was at the peak of the physical video games, and and people bought all these Nintendo Wii games and PlayStation Two games and Nintendo DS and all that. And that market peaked two thousand and nine. And since then, you know, the physical market has been, you know, stable or, or in decline. Uh, but obviously the growth in the industry has come from the digital transition of, of games being bought online or, or digitally uh, and, and new business models such as mobile. So, and that's why I decided 2009 to, well, 2008, we, we start allocating our first profits or capital to making our own games. So we made a fairly successful uh, karaoke music game called We Sing that sold over a million units in Europe. Uh, but that was on Nintendo only. So we kind of closed that down in a way. And, and then, then the situation came from an Austrian company that ran out of money and, and they, they were public, a small public company in Austria, a publisher called Juhud. So they kind of called me uh, and then it took a while and then we, I, you know, we acquired all assets and IPs and set up a new company. So first business in Vienna, we had like seven people employed and, and obviously now that is one of our eight operating groups, but now there are eight, 800 people. Wow. Are, are, uh, are you a gamer yourself? Yeah, I love games. It, it's just a uh, time allocation is obviously hard yeah, in, in terms of games. So, <laughs> you know, when I was younger, I loved playing this, you know, Metroid on NES and the C64 games and Super Nintendo games. Yeah. Uh, but nowadays, to be fair, I, I play a bit of my, you know, casual games. For example, the easy brain games we have, and, and then I play with my son occasionally. Okay. Yeah, I can't sit down for the full console experience uh, anymore. No. <laughs> All right. Um, so let's dig into the MA a little bit. Obviously, acquisitions are a pretty big part of your strategy now. So, what do you look for when you guys are making acquisitions? Is it more IP focused, more focused on the team that they have, or is it kind of a blend of everything? Yeah, so, so I think it's important to understand, you know, the why we exist and, and what's the difference of Embracer and others and, and that's coming into MA. So obviously Embracer is all about finding great entrepreneurs or leading entrepreneurs in gaming that want to join the group and to allocate more capital into those businesses and have them expanding organically and inorganically. So last year we made 37 acquisitions, but most of those acquisitions are 
you know, companies they are bringing into their groups, like Sabre Interactive or THQ Nordic, and and uh, and, and normally it's uh, games developers. We have eight to six game development studios across the group now, but they are constantly, obviously, you know, trying to add more, and 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 then we are organically setting up new ones. Do you uh do you give autonomy to the the groups because you have the, you know you have you you guys at the top the the headquarters and then you have the eight operating groups do you give them yeah. autonomy to make acquisitions Yeah pretty much obviously that's is one one of our strength and the operating model to empower leading people to do what they're good at whether they're making a game or running a business I don't believe in you know that I should decide how they should get you know how they should manage their business otherwise i shouldn't have acquired them so so obviously if, if randy or clemens you know tells me that hey this is fan- a fantastic games developer i want to bring them into the group we find a reasonable transaction here obviously i, I i'm normally very supportive legally all acquisitions needs to be signed off by by me or the board but I would say for smaller acquisitions, it's more a formality. Obviously, we look into everything and there is a due diligence process and you know there is a lot of formality around it. But in the end of the day, Embracer is about trusting people, I would say the most. So on the side of the company that's being acquired, what how do they benefit from being under the Embracer Group umbrella? Is there is there something they get out of it is there maybe like guidance i guess yeah so there's tons of things so what we have seen in the companies we have been acquired that we have acquired and and especially the you know more sizable ones they've been growing organically post acquisition and going from a private company to a public company they are we are unlocking a lot of ambition uh they want to do more things they want to do more games they want to set up more offices they want to you know do more business and we are unlocking that ambition that these entrepreneurs has been thinking about for years but not have been able to to do because they've been restricted being a, a private company and or with a shareholder that is very risk averse but I think now, since we have a much more, uh, you know, d- these diverse revenue streams and profitability, a, a, a business risk, one game is not a huge business risk because we have 200 games under development. An average game is not a huge business risk. But for a private company, one game could be a huge business risk. Right, right, um, right now. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, so, or sorry, to, yeah, sorry, go ahead. So, yes, I think it's just, you know, Embracer, what is Embracer? We are like an ecosystem of opportunities. We have hundreds of IPs, uh, development resources, access to marketing. We have 17 publishers, uh, QA services, um, translations. So there is tons of things you can have access to if you would like to. Some people joining the group, they use a lot of services within the group, either the existing vertical or up, you know, across the group. Some companies in reality, they just continue doing what they did before, but perhaps taking a little bit more business risks. But so it really varies uh, depending on, on what you know, the, the, the mindset of the management joining. Right. Okay. And one thing I think anyone familiar with, say, publicly traded video game publishers or studios is that, at least in the United States, a lot of them have focused on building, you know, really big, but focusing only on three or four maybe large franchises. And the thought is for them is that that focus allows them to make them bigger and bigger and bigger. But you guys kind of have the opposite approach, or at least it's built out that way since you give everyone full autonomy. And you have 197 projects in development, like you guys said, and almost 7,500 game developers, if I'm reading your guys' letter correctly. How do you guys 
like, what is your strategy to manage such a large set of assets and studios? I know you talked about it a bit, but is there anything else that you guys try to do to help enable success? No, each decision is is made, you know, within, you know, first of all, I'm lo- I, I want people to make decisions as close as they should be taken as possible. So each each decision of making a new game is taken at the studio level, at the publishing level, or in cooperation. And and if needed, it's signed off, you know, with me or, or, or the board, but I would say rarely for small and mid-sized projects. Um, whether they make a triple A game or they can make a double A game or a triple indie game or something else, it's it's about you know how how the allocation of resources, meaning the developers and other resources. It's really up to the publishers and the development teams. Some games developers they wanted to make the transition from being double A to triple A, which is a big change, or from a, in the game to to something else um and and we are supportive of that we decided or yeah we decided at the last quarterly reporting to show a little bit of this upcoming pipeline and so far we on a performer basis we have only released two triple a titles so far and and but we have 25 AAA titles now under um, planned or under production over the coming four and a half years. So I, I think we will see more sizable games coming out. It's not really a strategy just to make or start making more and more AAA. It's it's kind of we decided to show a little bit of this pipeline. Obviously, we have tons of great. Triple A indie game or triple indie game or indie games or double A games and so on as well. Right. And the most important thing that we, at least we hear publicly from other, you know, publicly uh, traded companies in the video game industry is how important developer count is and a total employee count. You see some people, uh, you know, really telling that they're able to attract some. And then there's others, um, you know, that I think are very well known that have had that have had their struggles with acquiring developers in the last year or so, how important is developer talent or not, maybe not even talent, just total headcount for getting games out? Like what is the dynamic there? Like how many do you need? Is there like a maximum or it's kind of a black box for someone that's not in the industry? Yeah, so, so talking AAA, our definition of a AAA, the product has to be at least 100 um, premium games developer at peak. But normally it's more, and and you know, let's say up to two fifty uh, across our portfolio. So obviously, development resources is one of the biggest bottlenecks of the for growing in the industry. There is a lack of talent and resources to 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 make you know enough games. So. And obviously, that's why we have been, you know, organically trying to add, you know, as much talent as possible. And I'm super proud of we're able to increase organically 25% year over year headcounts. And on top of that, we're doing um, MA. So, um, yeah, I think it's critical, you know. Uh, and I, I'm happy to see that. There, there is more and more countries and, and uh, studios coming up across the world that are able to produce high quality content. So it's not only limited to America or Sweden anymore. So you can find real talents all across the world that are able to also produce premium games. Do you, do most of uh, the studios have remote work? Do most of your guys' studios? It varies by studio. I, th- I think more. I think most of them have yes. Okay, and has it? How has it impacted the the industry? At least again, just anecdotally from us hearing from reading other people's conference calls and stuff like that, they've said they they felt a bit of a headwind from making that adjustment. Have you guys seen that, or I guess how do you see the work environment changing from maybe more of a distributed workforce? Is that a positive or negative, or maybe just kind of a weird part of the video game development story going forward? 
I don't have the full science on this. I, I think you're right that this post-pandemic has definitely changed the dynamics, especially for uh, certain studios that has been, you know, uh, used to work in a quite close environment in in office space in in a small mid-sized city. They could struggle because then they now the talents working there could get offers from other studios you know, on distance or global offers. Um, at the same time, this is an opportunity. And again, we grow our headcounts organically 25%. So, um, so I, I think there is, for us, it's, it's hard to say what the net thing is. I, I think for us is net positive uh, for most of our studios. But I, I know some studios has been, you know, it's been tough. And and especially if you have very sizable teams, and, and and you know it could be tough if you have not all people in the same room sometimes, or, or people, uh, you know, obviously quitting and, and moving to other studios and stuff. So I think we just or we are adapting, and I and I believe our decentralized management uh, model works well here. You know, we are entrusting the, the local studio heads and the CEOs to adapt and to work with the, with the employees and, and to find, you know, the right ways here. What, uh, what metrics do you use to kind of evaluate the success of Embracer Group, I guess, long term? The profitability. Okay. I that's it. That's uh, an easy one. <laughs> What uh, well, what kind of so that's the thing with video game companies, you're not a lot of the times it can be lumpier now. You guys are more, you have a lot more diversified assets, so it may not be as lumpy as say a studio that's doing a game every every three years or something like that. But how do you look at that as uh, I don't know, how do you track that? You know, like what kind of indicators can show you that you're on the right path towards? say growing your profits per share or something like that yeah so we have started doing forecasting on the on the profitability defined as operational EBIT, which is basically the profitability before um, goodwill amortizations and um, acquisition related um, amortizations and and you're right you know profits per share is I would say also obviously very important. Now we are very financial. Obviously, you can put tons of other KPIs and you know, you know, keep keeping your employees uh, uh, working on the long term, building new IPs, uh, customer um, customer retention. Uh, so there's tons of other KPIs. But in the end of the day, you know, we 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 are a holding company and. We are entrusting entrepreneurs and creators to to make their best decisions to build their business and games. And what's paying the bills in the end of the day, we need to make a business, meaning a profit. And I'm trying to avoid having margin, um, chasing higher margins all the time. For me, capital allocation decision is the risk-adjusted decision you need to make. Sometimes you, you, you take less business risk, but you make a safe return. Sometimes you take a lot of business risk, but you have the potential to make enormous margins. So we, for example, on the profitability, we're talking about having absolute numbers rather than a percentage. So we don't focus on the top line in order to avoid making stupid decisions. Um, cash flow is obviously important in the end of the day, but Right now, our strategy is to, to reinvest as much as we can. So meaning hiring more or less all people that we think make sense to make more and better games. And uh, so start having a, a cash flow forecast, I think would endanger that strategy. It, it's not, it wouldn't then, it wouldn't really work to, to have the strategy of then to invest as much as possible. Yeah. So that's why we just came up to the conclusion, profitability, that's, that's kind of the, the target. Yeah. Okay, no, that makes total sense. And 
the I guess the concern in general when investors look at a conglomerate, especially you guys are getting a lot bigger, is how much more can you reinvest? That's the big question people always have. Do you think, and this is probably a tough question, you, you may have something you don't want to disclose, but how how many operating groups do you think you can have? Uh, how many, like, is there a I know, ceiling? Yeah, is there a ceiling out there? Or do you think with, I mean, the gaming industry is so large, but with your guys' strategy, what do you think any sort of upper limits could be that you may be watching out for? You know, I I think there is not a simple uh, answer to that question. Obviously, we are evolving our our um, operating model, um, and we could for sure add more operating groups. Then you can question how many more, and. Uh, uh, we have been adding a lot of people to the parent company. You know, we started with three people. Now we are 31 people at the public parent company uh, in terms of to integrate, to do financial control, the compliance, go governance. Um, so I think we have extended the ability to manage a lot of more businesses. So at the moment, it, it's not a... Uh, major concern for me whether we're having eight or ten operating groups. The question is if whether you can have 20 or 15 or whether that would make sense. Um, I, I think right now we are focusing on, on continuing building and, um, and continue doing our strategy. Okay. And do, oh, go ahead, Ryan. Do you prefer to grow organically or do you like uh, the process of acquiring companies? Well, we prefer organic. You know, I think all businesses, you know, we love buying businesses with people that has a lot of ambitions to either make more business or to make bigger or greater game. And that is uh, organic investments. But you need to have platform to allocate capital through. That's why you need companies with uh, management or entrepreneurs with that ambition and have them growing organically. Okay. And I guess for anyone that doesn't know, can you highlight maybe one of your operating groups that can be an example of that? You know, maybe one of the studios that has a track record of building some bigger games. I forget some of the names, but there's, uh, you know, like Borderlands, I think was one of the names. Sorry, we're not of the, of the of the games, of, yeah, yeah, of the games for someone to like give an example of how a successful operating group, you know, would or would what, release what something under like. you guys. Yeah, what it looks like. Yes, so obviously, Coach Media, for example, uh, was our first transformative acquisition, and and is still our largest operating group that we acquired two thousand eighteen. Uh, when when we acquired them, they were 800 people. Today, there are 2,200 people. And so they've been growing organically and inorganically. And a number of the acquisitions we've done, uh, you know, under Coach Media, for example, Vorhorse that had a very successful release of Kingdom Come Deliverance uh, with Coach Media 2018, and then we acquired them. They've been growing organically since the acquisition from 30 people to 180 people. So now Warhorse in Prague is one of the leading AAA game developers in, 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 in Czech or in Eastern Europe or Central Europe. Um, that's one example. Um, Sabre. Saber Interactive, we, we got into the group as operating group in February 2020, last year. And uh, they were about 600 people when we got them into the group. Now, 18 months later, they are, I think, 2,500 people. Um, so, so they've expanded organically as well as mainly inorganically, obviously. So their main studio in St. Petersburg, which I would imagine is the largest premium games developer in, in, in Europe, has grown from like 500 to 750 people. Uh, 
and I think they make 14 games or 11 games. So, so there is, I think there is a lot of different cases across the group of, of studio tests really have been, are growing a lot within the group. Okay. And last question, we don't want to, you know, hit this topic too hard, but the most interesting thing about you guys is your payout strategy for acquisition company or for companies that you acquired. I don't think I've seen, uh, maybe you make it more uh, public than uh, other people, but can you explain how that works and what inspired you to do this long-term payout strategy? So, you know, when I talk to the entrepreneurs, the, the likes of myself across the industry that has built, you know, various businesses for 10, 20, 30 years, you know, I ask them, you know, what's their ambitions for the future? Do, do they want to join and so on? And, and, and I think the long-term mindset is just critical. So that is kind of sorting out a lot of entrepreneurs that just want to do an exit. So, and all the respect making an exit, that's great. You know, if you want to make an exit, that's fine. But then it's not for embracers. So, so I'm trying to get people that, okay, I want to do this thing for the next five or 10 or, you know, years. And then they have a really long-term mindset. And obviously I want to give them incentives aligned with that ambition. So we normally strike a, a day one consideration, cash and shares. And then we have earn out based on the, on, on the business plan. So they tell me, okay, I will, I will grow my EBIT from whatever $50 million a year to 150 over 10 years or eight years. Okay. Then we put the uh, milestones uh, across that. So, and, and with some catch up mechanism in order to, to be aligned. So it's not like a hard, hard cut. Um, and that's kind of how, how, and then, then we're raising equity. So we give them the equity also for the earnouts already at day one of the transaction. And then we have them under clawback. So to have the full earnout, the maximum earnout, then the, the entrepreneur needs to, to, to hit the 150 million EBIT uh, year eight. And then he would have the shares we agreed on. Um, All right. Uh, we, well, I have a bunch of more questions, but before we get to them, uh, we should hit a quick ad break. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by KPMG. As a business leader, how can you innovate, build trust, and move forward in a digital era? KPMG can help by bringing together the right talent and technologies, generating insights that spark opportunities. To explore their thinking, visit read.kpmg.us slash opportunities. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Here you are, miles from home and ready to start your vacation. Good thing you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. They have free high-speed Wi-Fi to stream all your favorite movies. And in the morning, get fresh waffles with their free bright side breakfast. Or squeeze in a workout at their fitness center. Either way, you're ready to conquer the day. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you triumph. Book your stay at LQ.com. All right, welcome back in. Uh, Something I wanted to touch on because you guys have kind of highlighted this as a part of your strategy is the recent focus on mobile. So. I guess what excites you the most about the mobile market? There are some fantastic entrepreneurs in, in mobile with long-term ambitions that really build sustainable, growing businesses. Take EasyBrain, for example, that is the category leader on, on brain, brain and puzzle games uh, globally and, and um, Deca Games uh, acquiring established IPs, uh, Crazy Labs, the one of the leading hypercasual publishers on the world. So they, they found their niches. They're having a, a lot of ambition. Uh, I am happily surprised of the stability and and, and uh, the nice growth in the businesses and 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 uh, the cash flow generation is fantastic. So 
Oh, it's nice. Uh, I, I was a bit skeptical. I historically have been a bit of a premium games, you know, guy, but you, 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 you learn. <laughs> well, uh, on, I guess on that note, what is, what's the difference in finding success for a mobile game versus a triple a game because some games get really popular on mobile and i would never think that they'd be uh that that kind of game would be would work so i guess like i don't know what what are the differences are the teams much smaller is it different tactics i guess it highly depends on what kind of game there is you know uh, um, a new mobile game could be a very big investment today you know, talking about the shooter or or a, or a big casual game, it could be a significant team size uh, with years of development. Uh, so it's it's quite risky, I would say. Um, if you're in that field of mobile, our businesses, it's a bit so. EasyBrain ha- has found a magic formula to create repetitive successes in their in their core. Number numbers games and brain and, and logic games, and Crazy Labs has has uh, hundreds of game developers out there creating content or games for them. So they they all have formulas how to create game. I think it's very different from premium games. Um, you, you you are creating a different kind of experience. You're kind of creating a different kind of monetization which changes the gameplay mechanics so it's it's really hard to compare um i think the synergies in mobile gaming and premium gaming is quite limited i would say um i think sometimes it's more synergies with premium gaming and and the tv and film production uh, industry you said you play a little bit of mobile games yourself. Do you have a favorite? Oh, wow. <laughs> the hard-hitting question here. <laughs> no, I really enjoyed uh, EasyBrain's latest the number, numbers match game. Okay. And, yeah, no, that, that was great on the, the mobile and premium stuff because, I mean, everyone talks about how, like, the developers, if or say development team, if they're going up, uh, like a mobile track, it's kind of hard to switch over, but I'm glad you could talk more on that. But speaking more on other entertainment mediums, there are rumors and a lot of talk out there about video game companies investing in TV and film for their intellectual property. I don't know if we've seen any big, well, there was The Witcher, I guess it's kind of a big one. There's been a few rumblings. How much of an opportunity do you believe there is in this market? Because I know you guys do have, uh, that's your other big operating segment that's not uh, strictly, you know, video game publishing? No, you know, we are, I think we are all passionate about what we define as IP driven, uh, IP driven media companies, such as, uh, you know, film and TV production, uh, board gaming, comic books, sci-fi novels, uh, trading cards. So anime. uh, So, there is tons of love for this kind of IPs and businesses. And I think there is fantastic entrepreneurs out there. So we have been updating the, our investors at our recent AGM that we might uh, in the future allocate capital towards, towards this, including M&A. So I think we see a lot of opportunities. I, I think all industries are changing, uh, but I think there is a lot of um, opportunity to to use IPs across various medias, and also to do uh, to put the leading creators uh, in the same room uh, and creating uh, creating things together or from the same base. So, and obviously the the, the support or the growth of Unreal is is. Unreal Engine, for example, is uh, supporting that. Okay. While while on the topic of, I guess, alternative mediums, we can't have a gaming expert on without mentioning uh, the the M word, as we call it, which is the metaverse. So do you spend much time thinking about the metaverse? Um, And I guess, do you think maybe 
some of it's overblown or maybe maybe too popular now or i guess just what are your thoughts on it no obviously we are we are the you know we are in the metaverse and we are creating content for the metaverse already um on on Thursday this week, uh, we are we're releasing uh, uh, our first metaverse, true metaverse title after the fall, um, which will be a true uh, thirty-two players uh, multiplayer across different VR. Uh, you know, you can hang out with your friends and, and enjoy uh, a shooter, zombie shooter. Wow. Uh, so, I think we are one of the most one of, of uh, hopefully uh, important content supplier to the Facebook uh, Meta uh, ecosystem. Uh, you know, we are hopefully great business partners to to, or I know we are to Epic and and, uh, and their ambitions in the metaverse. Um, we don't have you know. A, 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 virtual world defined uh, metaverse within the group at scale today let's see if we would have that one day but until then i think you know we love to work with partners that that have the ambition to create their own uh, metaverses and and uh, to be a, a great content supplier to them okay uh, good um is it how much how different is the development cycle for i guess a metaverse game is it much vr well it's vr VR, yeah (laughs) we we are or a virtual mmo or you know it's it's different you know it's it's more depend what you do obviously but i would say right now it's a bit you know the content you're creating for roblox or or obviously it's not triple a productions as such um so uh I think there is definitely an opportunity for for small and mid-sized games developers to benefit from the rise of the metaverses. Also, VR games development is shorter and cheaper than uh, than premium normal premium games. Really interesting. I would have thought it was maybe it'll expand over time, but I would have thought it was since it's more immersive, it would have taken more development time. But it's the opposite. Is there any reason uh, for that? Well, I, I think. No, I'm not the expert on that, but I would imagine it's less content. Okay. Uh, you know, you, you can't consume so, so much content over so many hours. You you get sick uh, or, or it would be a problem. Yeah. So I think that's one of the, the reasons. Okay. And speaking of the platform, your relationship with platforms and stuff like that, what are so the big things that I guess investors talk about for the long term with the industry is the subscription services for games and potentially, although it hasn't really worked out so far, the cloud streaming Hmm. um, stuff, you know, Stadia is the biggest example. It hasn't really worked out too well so far, but we'll see if it ever gets there. What opportunities or risks do you see to your business? If those type of things become more popular, excuse me, for, for consumers? No, you know, we love the, you know, first of all, we love when there is, uh, Big companies entering gaming and and with a lot of ambition to build an end consumer business. So you know we're happy to work with them and 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 uh, you know happy to supply our IPs and content to them. And at Stadia and Google, we I think we are number two uh, number two content supplier uh, to them. And we, you know we have been working with now with the, Facebook and Amazon and, and another company. So I think that's great for us. And I love competition. So I don't think, obviously, I, I don't want, I don't want uh, the gaming universe just to be, become one universe one day. I love that there is several platforms and several, several technologies around. That's good for Embracer. And I think it's good for the industry. I have, I have one more question on the metaverse, which is... Uh... I get, do you think it's going to be new types of games that are popular in there? Or do you think it'll be the existing franchises, the, the popular console types translated over to the metaverse? Well, depending on how you define a metaverse. So I think in VR, there will definitely be new IPs uh, becoming popular and new genres. 
but I think there is a market for existing IPs or licenses. Um, talking about the virtual worlds like Fortnite and Roblox and so on, I'm sure there is room for a few more. Um, and there will be games that we are not aware of today coming up uh, in that field. I'm sure there will be similar games, very popular on mobile uh, as well in, in the future. Um, so let's see. I, I, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to bring the leading people and, and supply people with the content. Uh, and um, then, uh, then uh, Mark and, and Tim and other visionaries, they, they, they outline their future and, and we, you know, make business with them. Yeah, whoever whoever wins, uh, you guys will you know all serve, serve yeah, everyone, right? right? Yeah, you'll be there uh, for all for all the users. There. Yeah, one uh, the other kind of fast growing part of the industry is Roblox or anyone similar to them. With the, I guess it's a, an entirely different model where it's Game well, it's not games. too different than you guys, where it's more decentralized. But it's you don't even have you don't even know who's really making the games. Or you can I guess you kind of do. They work with them sometimes, but you have these, you know, platform-based, do-it-yourself, yeah. almost, almost YouTube-style stuff. What are you? Th what do you think the advantages and disadvantages of uh, of that model are? No, obviously it's fantastic to to have your to have people creating content for you, and 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 um, a lot of people are successful. So I, I think that will definitely evolve over time. And uh, you know, it's, I, I know there's a field we, we we some people are looking into with a cross embracer as well. So let's see. Um, Roblox has built a fantastic uh, universe, but I, I, I think uh, there there is room for more. So you know, you you've also it sounds like uh, you've been a part of the gaming industry for a pretty long time. So. Uh, something that I saw on, I think it was an investor presentation or something like that, was this games archive. Um, mm -hmm. What what exactly is that? And then kind of what's your ambition with that? No, I, I think, you know, we're trying to, you know, build the archive of all, all games made um, uh, here in Sweden, in Karlstad. And, and you know, it's some, something I'm, I'm personally very passionate about. And I have a lot of people at here in Sweden that is really passionate about retro gaming and old games and also when you when you bring people here uh, to Sweden and to my hometown I think there is always a game that someone has been working on or there is a company someone has been working on so it's something you it's actually quite nice you just sit down and look a bit of the the, the legacy and the history of the industry um, and I think it will be a tool for us to support potentially in the future uh, museums and institutions or exhibitions, or let's say we're doing a, a Star Wars game or we can push a button and then having all hundreds of different Star Wars game shipped to E3 or, or another trade show. So I, I think it's just a, a very nice passion-driven function, you know, which talks to uh, a lot of people and uh, a lot of people are interested both internally and externally to take part of this. Yeah. All right. And all right, we got two more questions. First one's more specific, kind of the last one in gaming. What, what do you think, I guess, so the big thing with a lot of franchises is there's been some in gaming that have stayed around for multiple decades. And some kind of have one hit wonders and then they die off with this. Maybe something that more of the operating groups themselves deal with, but what, what do you think makes a franchise have sticking power or staying power, excuse me, within, you know, with consumers? Well, you know, I, I think there are several factors. I think one factor you need to have a fantastic development team that are, you know, developing and, and extending the IPs and, 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 you know, by iterations, just improve it and, and building a community, listening to your customers and then, then just constantly improve the product over time. Um, I think that's critical. And, and, um, 
I think that's why you see more and more games successful that are you know, either early access for a very long time or, or live operated through very active communities for many years. I, I think it's a challenge to, 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 to do these huge AAA games that comes like every five or 10 years. You, you really need to have a, a very strong IP and, and a very strong team to be successful on that. Okay. All right. And we appreciate you taking all these questions. I know we, we asked a ton, uh, so appreciate that. But the last one we have just in, in general, you have a very successful business going. What's one piece of advice that you have for anyone who is looking to start a business today? Wow. <laughs> Pick what you know and what you believe in and don't listen too much to all other people. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of noise, right? I, I'm sure you had a lot of people saying that, um, I don't know, that strategy or, or whatever, the decentralized strategy wouldn't work. But yeah, that, that totally makes sense. All right, Ryan, it, it, it's, like, it's like when you're having an issue somewhere and then you're asking the best experts in the world or, and key stakeholders, you will have, if you ask 20 people, you will have, 20 different answers. So in the end of the day, you need to be able to make your own decision what you believe is the right thing. But still, it's important to listen and to, to gather information. So I think that's critical uh, to be successful uh, starting your own business. Okay. All right. Well, that's all the questions we have. Uh, I guess, thank you for taking the time to do this. Thank you. All right. Uh, I, get, I guess as far as sign-off goes, uh, do you have a Twitter? Can people follow you on Twitter? I'm not active on Twitter. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> no worries. It's a waste of time. So <laughs> the, uh, uh, but if you want to check out uh, Embracer Group's games, you can go check out all their studios. Go uh, try out some of the games for yourself. Yeah. Um, without further ado, I'm going to do the uh, disclosure here. Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital, so clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.